spend most of the time talking about pastime and the work you've done. But before we do that, just a little bit about uh, what okay. is your practice of photography like for you? What's it like for you to be a photographer? Well, it's a great way to live. It's a privilege. It's an avenue for uh, making my way through the world and possibly helping me understand it, although it's mostly incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, photography for me comes from a place of, of curiosity rather than message delivery, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. But how did you find your way into that practice of photography as a way of indulging your curiosity or serving your curiosity mm -hmm. uh, and finding your way through life? How did that happen for you? Um, well, photography is hard work and it's difficult. And so it's important to have strong motivation to want to do it and, and to live as an artist or a photographer. It's, it can be difficult. And so there has to be some reason to do it. Mm -hmm. And so that's, uh, for me, it, it wouldn't be worth doing unless it was something that I got a lot out of. Um, and what I get out of it is, uh, well, it's really like a passport. You know, it's mm -hmm. a privilege to be a photographer mm -hmm. and it's sort of a passport to poke my nose in places. At least th this is how I started out thinking about mm -hmm. it. You know, I get to see things that other people might not get to see. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a hunt and, hunting and gathering aspect that, I mean, this has been traditional in photography for a long time where you go out and you capture things. You know, the language of photography includes a lot of kind of hunting. Mm -hmm. you know, in fact, with digital now, that's an expression that's used, oh, great capture. We're capturing something, but even at the beginning of the, the history of the medium, people were going out and recording things that hadn't been seen before and bringing them back. I mean, sometimes that went hand in hand with literally bringing back human beings in captivity to show them off. It was a similar um, impulse um, with the photography, you know, to photograph the exotic, um, the strange, the other. And at some point in your life, as with every photographer, you said, wow, this is what I'll do. And what, what was that for you? How did that happen for you? Well, it was you a say, this is what I'll do and not these other things. Well, I've always, since I was a kid, liked taking pictures and I never really thought about it as a career or why I wanted. But even since I was eight years old, I think I still have some pictures that I took then. And I remember there's just a lot of energy in it for me. There was a time after I had worked professionally for a while after school that, um, I started to think about this notion of, of documentary photography in particular, of going out into the world and bringing back the exotic. And I turned that around because I realized that there's exotic among us, there's strange among us, there's so much hidden in plain sight in, a, in America, in the culture that I know. So that's when I started looking in, in factories and in office, corporate offices you know, they're everyday things. They're not strange looking. And going from working in a commercial realm to discovering, as you did, that, wow, there's all this exotic, uh, exotica right around me, hidden in mm. plain sight, as you say. And 
then beginning that pathway toward uh, doing your own documentary work, or some people use the phrase personal work. Mm -hmm. um, describe that pathway. What was that journey like for you to move more into making a living? I'm making a living as a commercial photographer, loving that, enjoying that. But I'm seeing the opportunity to be more expressive maybe or more connected to this personal work what was that journey like for you yeah i don't remember saying that i loved and enjoyed <laughs> the commercial work although I, I took satisfaction from it, it uh -huh. you know it seemed uh -huh. like a like an honest living well that work brought me into environments that i just found visually very interesting the chaos and clutter of industrial and manufacturing environments but when i was photographing them for clients let's make it elegant let's uh, Serve someone else's vision or someone else's yeah. need. Yeah, so you can put it in the annual report and the shareholders will be impressed. And that wasn't what I was interested in. I mean, I've always been interested in chaos. I kind of live my life in chaos, both uh, visually and, and otherwise in some regards. Uh, so um, I just found the environments just fascinating. Yeah. And also, they, it, they were unseen. You know, it was behind a wall that people from the outside didn't know what was going on. So no, notions of chaos and uh, kind of order climbing its way out of chaos, I found really interesting. Um, you did, it's interesting to hear you describe your uh, predilection for or your having the sense of being part of chaos and it's mm -hmm. coming at you and you know, you didn't say surfing, but kind of surfing in that in mm -hmm. a way. Um, and I happen to know the story. I'm going to ask you to kind of share it a little bit about sure. how you, how the, the great work, uh, I think a seminal book uh, in one of the books that, well, brought you to my attention was the book that you developed with Martin Parr um, uh, around something that is the, in some ways the least chaotic, the local people meeting mm -hmm. to try to solve local problem, problems together in meeting rooms. Tell me how that went from how that you did sort of grow out of some thoughts that you developed doing commercial work, and then you began to think about, well, I could do a project. Just how that whole thing sure. unfolded. What I described earlier was was more about a, um, an aesthetic interest I had in, in chaos, but um, I followed the office and factory projects up with a project photographing nuclear weapons, and that was uh, about a 12-year uh, obsessive endeavor. Um, and there were still some of the same visual interests for me because military environments are often like industrial environments and particularly things like submarines and uh, weapons maintenance facilities are industrial facilities. And, and so I was kind of pursuing the same formal concerns there. But of course, as a subject matter, it was much more loaded, no pun intended. Um, you know, just some pretty heavy stuff. Um, and uh, towards the end of that project in the late 1990s, I was focusing a, a lot on the command and control structure, um, particular to nuclear weapons, but you know it's part of the overall military structure. And that is how decisions are made and how they're carried out. So conference rooms, command centers, uh, conference rooms in command centers, and I was photographing uh, as many of those environments as I could gain access to. And the absence of human beings was a very uh, pronounced uh, 
um, missing factor. And, and I remember thinking to myself, I was at the Pentagon photographing a conference room, the Joint Chiefs of Staff conference room, and I was just thinking, man, this is pretty good without people, but how cool would it be to photograph if there were people actually in here making literal life and death decisions, and particularly with regards to nuclear weapons. You know, they discussed targeting options and so on. I mean, deciding not just the fate of individual lives, but entire uh, civilizations. Uh, you know, really making decisions regard that have genocidal Im impact. I mean, mm -hmm. talk about uh, talk about existential uh, threat. It's uh, was right there happening, and so I came up with the notion of trying to photograph important, powerful meetings as a follow-up project. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had big ideas, but they didn't come to pass because e even though I had been really successful in getting access to these very difficult areas with the military. Um, I wanted to photograph the uh, board meetings of Fortune 500 corporations, and that was not only more difficult, it was impossible. I mean, I had some pretty good leads and some pretty good strategies and methods for negotiating access, and I was told more than once by people who knew, they said, Paul, that's never going to happen. You will never be able to photograph an actual board of directors meeting of a Fortune 500 company while it's going on. It's because corporations, don't, they don't have any legal um, obligation mm -hmm. to let me in, whereas the government actually does to some extent. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of twisting and convincing and things like that to make the government do it, but they will do it eventually, but the corporations wouldn't. Um, so from there, uh, and this is the, to me the fun. This is the fun leap that you made from a thing that could not be more different than I, I think yeah. of as a nuclear command center environment with people to, you know, basement uh, yeah. county commission. But anyway, so so I was, was photographing some government meetings. I, I had hoped to be able to photograph the president's cabinet. Uh, you know, this was during the uh, Clinton administration, I think, and I. Like I had some people who knew people who knew people in the administration, and uh, but that didn't happen. I went to Washington. Mm -hmm. I photographed some committee hearings. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, you probably saw recently at the impeachment hearings there was a, a news photographer, David Burnett, who mm -hmm. was photographing with a, a view camera, mm -hmm. and and I don't know if you saw any of that. If you like, look at the, the at the photo yeah. sites online. He was shooting sh sh four by five sheet film, mm. and. Uh, I was actually using a large format camera to shoot some committee hearings mm -hmm. with a roll film back on it. And uh, this was, oh, this would have been like uh, 2099, uh, early 2001, before 9-11. And I could just walk into these committee hearings without anybody's, any security, anybody asking who I was, just go down. There's like a well that the press photographers sit in and they're all, they're with their long lenses, lenses if they even bothered to show up for a particular You didn't hearing. need credentials or anything? No, just a occasionally yeah. a, a staff member would come up to me during a break and say, who are you, what are you doing? Um, and, and I had talked to some people from my congressional delegation just mm -hmm. to kind of help mm -hmm. grease the wheels. But those pictures, I still have them, I've never shown them. And they're just, they weren't, the, weren't what I was interested in. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were more about, you know, the media and the TV cameras and, and at one point, I don't remember when, or well, it would have been around 1999, I just decided to go to a 
local, very small town, rural town council meeting in Minnesota to see what was going on there. And it just really, the scales fell off my eyes. It was just so beautiful. And just, I immediately knew, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing for the next five mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. And that book, uh, to me, is really, a, I referenced it as a seminal book. It was for me. It picked <laughs> up with... Uh, you know, Winterbrand's public relations and other books that it's that, some that good company with, to be yeah, in. Yeah, well, it definitely yeah. is good company to be yeah. in. And I, I think uh, that's probably why it sparked a Martin Parr's uh, uh, mm -hmm. interest in how it got to be. So, how did pastime uh, evolve from the practice? And you didn't use the word practice, but as I was listening to you describe how photography for you is a way to move through the world mm -hmm. and it's kind of what various practices are so the practice of photography one of the you know and you 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 occupy many you know rooms in that mansion and so one question would be how did pastime become uh, an area for you that you began to uh, work in well photography for me is, is a coping mechanism and there's no one size fits all i think for me in particular every artist is different, every photographer is different. Some people, I think, either develop or are born with a style and kind of just with a way of making images and they stick with that through their whole career. Um, and I've just never been one of those people. I just like trying different things. I guess maybe I get bored easily. I, you know, you, you can learn to make a certain type of good picture and then go through your whole life making that type of good picture mm -hmm. and I just, don't want to do that. And so I've shifted gears a lot. You know, meetings was a big shift of gears in terms, you know, stylistically and formally. Uh, the longer I've been practicing in photography and as an artist, the more interested I am in um, just expanding the medium, uh, combining it, thinking about installation, thinking about other materials, text. Um, I love doing research. Um, so these are all things that I'm more and more interested in incorporating. Um, I did a project after 9-11 uh, photographing um, Homeland Security training sites. And I don't want to spend much time talking about that, but the, I guess what I want to, the point I want to get into with that is that um, there's no easy answers for how to respond to something going on. So, you know, 9-11 was a thing that happened over a few minutes that really changed the world, changed history, and changed me as a person. I mean, everybody in the world, mm -hmm. um, you just couldn't ignore it. Mm -hmm. And so it, um, so what do I do with that as an artist? Is it even appropriate to think of that in terms of what kind of art do I make? Mm -hmm. And it took a while, it took me mm -hmm. several years to kind mm -hmm. of come up with a... A, a, re a response? Is yeah, that a right? response or a yeah. strategy to yeah. formulate a response, yeah. to ask the questions. Yeah. So photography is a practice that you use to cope and to connect to the world. After 9-11, what will photography be for me in coping with the world after 9-11? Right. right, and, and photography was, was very important in the event itself. I mean, those images are really seared in our brains. There was a, a magnum meeting happening in New York, I think in lower Manhattan on that morning. So all the like greatest photo journalists and documentary photographers in the world were out there photographing. So the event itself was documented very thoroughly and beautifully. Um, but the, the, the impact, the aftermath um, 
it's, it's more complicated. And, and, and my response was complicated too. You know, nuclear weapons, I don't like them. I think they're a bad idea. Mm -hmm. So even though I didn't try to structure my project so that it was this uh, kind of propagandist, anti-nuclear mm -hmm. um, thing, that's more or less how I in intended it to function. I just right. wanted to keep it more subtle than that. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have a, I had a very conflicted response mm -hmm. and also thinking about what should our nation's response be, what should my response be mm -hmm. as a person, we were going to war, that was clear. Mm -hmm. um, so it took me a while to think about, you know, just how do I pro approach this as an artist? Mm -hmm. And so the um, approach I took was about looking at the question of what is real and simulation, and that was at the time when uh, we were about to go to a war with Iraq over the alleged weapons of mass mm -hmm. destruction, and there was bad mm -hmm. intelligence or made-up intelligence, we don't know, but there, mm -hmm. you know, truth and lies, mm -hmm. the difference was, was in the air. So that's why I looked at simulations and training sites mm -hmm. for that. And, and what, I, what I'm hearing in that looking and finding, the, this is where I can look. Uh, I'm finding a tendency, at least in that episode, and maybe in some of the others, to, and this is maybe my bias because I like work that doesn't, it's not too on the nose. In mm -hmm. other words, it's kind of the thing that's beside the point, which can be revealing, you mm -hmm. know, not, not, not photographing the event itself or the ruins after the event or that yeah. we're going to war, but what's the thing that's sort of beside that that might tell us something yeah. or reveal something to sort of de- conceal and open yeah and so that's what that work was and I get that we're moving to now how that connects to pastime yeah and another response maybe yeah yeah so during the election campaign leading up to the the 2016 election the primary campaign in 2015 um, Donald Trump um, surprised virtually everyone and started to appear as a, as a viable candidate um, and the expression make America great again was was in the air and uh, I was asking myself what where did we get this idea of what America looked like and was great because I was really thinking of it visually um, and the good old days is sort of related to that um, and I grew up post-World War II America. I was born in 1956. Um, and so there were images that came to my mind um, that I knew came from uh, television shows, uh, situation comedies, movies, uh, you know, a white picket fence. Uh, it wasn't a, an urban environment. Uh, it was a small town or suburban environment and um, there were white families, man and a woman, a few children, uh, friendly people. Uh, so it was n nostalgia. Um, and nostalgia has always been interesting to me. Uh, it became apparent to me that it was becoming politicized. And uh, as, as Trump got more and more traction and it became pretty clear he was going to be the nominee, I was actually not surprised. I, I sort of predicted, you can check Facebook, in <laughs> August of 2015, I said, you know, this guy could get elected. Let's not, mm -hmm. let's not laugh so hard. Because the Democrats 
you know, people in, in my world basically were saying, oh, wouldn't it be hilarious if Donald Trump was, was the candidate because, you know, Clinton will just kick his ass. And, mm -hmm. and so I'm like, you know, don't, don't, don't start laughing yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's what got me interested and started on this project. Um, I started making lists of places that I could go. I was interested in, in photographing the contemporary life in places that may have been formative and how we think of the good old days. So uh, I started doing research, you know, it was right in my, right in my wheelhouse for that. Uh, looking at websites, looking at places like Andy Griffith's hometown, Walt Disney's hometown. Uh, and at the same time, um, I had been collecting mostly children's books um, from when I grew up, uh, reading primers, uh, books that showed this idealized version of America. And again, uh, you know, straight white families. Uh, you know, nostalgia is just a funny thing. It's, it's, it's seductive. It's like candy, but, you know, like it's really not good for you. <laughs> uh, and it was also clearly serving political purposes. And I remembered that during the Reagan administration as well, because he grew up in a small town in Illinois, Dixon, Illinois, and that was one of the places I, I visited. There are a lot of racial overtones to the notion of make America great again. There's just a lot that's problematic about it. I mean, two things is one is, um, was America so great for everybody? And clearly not because uh, during the, the boom times, I mean, post-war, post-World War II America, the economy was going crazy. There was, uh, you know, the rise of the suburbs and home technology, appliances, you know, women that worked in the home, had a lot of their work done by them, done for them by technology. So there are a lot of things changing and you could look and say, well, you know, what a great time to be alive if you're an American. Um, but it was also um, before the civil rights struggle sort of came, became mainstream and then it truly was a struggle for many years, it still is. But mm -hmm. at that time it was an armed struggle in the streets. Mm -hmm. And particularly in my family, you know, we had a very uh, difficult family life and uh, it was very important in our community that we appeared as the perfect family. So again, you know, the sort of divide between what's, what's real and what's projected or made up. Mm -hmm. um, even though my projects tend to have a, a very external focus, it's, it's always about me, it's always personal. And this kind of circles back to what I said at the beginning. You, you need a lot of motivation. You need a lot of juice and energy to do this kind of work, mm -hmm. especially work that is, uh, there's no blueprint for it. You know, there's no textbook, at least not that I'm aware of, on how to design a photography art project that responds mm -hmm. to the world around us. You just have to make it up. And I, I get that you're making it up, clearly, and your work has been different in so many ways and that each project is based, is sort of sits on the bottom, if I am getting this right, that really grows out of uh, personal, um, the practice of photography as a way of interacting and uh, uh, processing, in a way, what you're seeing in your world. and. Uh, when the Trump phenomenon and this nostalgia and the traffic, the political trafficking of nostalgia that may or may not have 
you know, to degrees really existed. Um, and so you began the research, you had the material from other predilections for that mm -hmm. sort of, not a sweet tooth for, but a fascination with mm -hmm. how have we presented these idealized uh, notions of what uh, an American might be. And you in your own personal life had been somewhat shaped to say, well, we're going out now, let's present us ourselves mm -hmm. properly out in public and yeah. all that comes with that. So what I'm, what I'm getting from this is just a, an immediate sense that this grows out of a cocktail that is in part personal, in part being an astute observer of what's going on in my world now. That was 9-11 and now this is Trump and the weaponization of MAGA, make America great again, in a way weaponization because we didn't know that it would unfold the way that it's unfolded and so you're digging into through and I want to connect this to another point you made, which is, for me, very interesting in this project and in your work, this connection of research and material in addition to the still photographic image. And that mm. really, maybe more than any project I'm aware of, really grows out of pastime. Pastime is really quite... Uh, I don't want to say it's more than a photo book because it's it's a photo book, mm -hmm. but it is it's got elements to it that are kind of from a formal standpoint not always seen in a photo in a photo book. So I guess there's a question there, and I think it is mm -hmm. uh, trying to tie up how your response came f to produce pastime. How did that emerge as? well, I'm going to go to these cities and I'm going to, and then this is a coloring book photograph I love and this is a still image from uh, and the Andy Griffiths show or the other elements that are in it. How did that sort of evolve for you? Or for the work, really? Well, really sort of independently of me making pictures, I, I've collected things for a long time. And, and I think the very impulse of photography is a collecting impulse. Um, but I've been, you know, going to junk sales and and antique stores as I travel around, and you know, I've just been buying stuff that strikes my fancy, and I didn't really know why. I I love illustration too, and and most of the work I'm using in the in this book, they actually are very good illustrations. I mean, they're they're well painted. There's a lot of photographers and artists that are working with sourced material now. You know, that's sort of the term of art. Sourced is sort of a synonym for appropriated or sometimes stolen or swiped. Um, or found. Found. Pictures we didn't made. For years I've given yeah. them an assignment called OPs, which is other people's pictures, where they find them, think themselves about why, why is this interesting to me, and then talk with us about it. So there, there's a great interest in photography in particular with vernacular, with found photographs. Um, and they are amazing to me. As an artist, my question is, like, where's the added value? You know, it's a business term, but how am I adding value to the proposition of finding a photograph other than just mm -hmm. putting it on the internet or holding up in real life saying, look, isn't this funny? Isn't this cool? I, I wanted to try incorporating them with my own photography, and it's something I'd thought about for a while, and this just seemed like a thing to try. I'm pretty excited about 
where it's going, but the proof will be in the pudding. Uh, you take any two things and put them next to each other and they're going to talk to each other. Whether it's two like things, like two photographs, they're going to have a conversation, whether it's an apple and an orange, or whether it's a photograph I make and an illustration from a 1958 children's book, they're going to talk to each other. And let's just pick a city and a, and a, and a, and a personage, uh, Ronald Reagan. Okay. Talk to me about how in that, how did Ronald Reagan as, a, as, a, as an iconic idea, he's more mm -hmm. than just, well, he was a human being, now he's an idea and he's part of the, the simulacrum of the, of the uh, MAGA world and, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you had some images that you had associations. How did, how did your work in that Ronald Reagan realm unfold for you? Well, Ronald Reagan was a president during my adult lifetime. Um, I was working as a photojournalist then. I actually photographed him. There's, there's still pictures floating around the internet of Ronald Reagan that have my, my name on him that I get a small check for every now and then. There's a Republican, uh, a conservative campaign that was going around on the internet. And I said, hey, that's my picture they're using. And they had every right to use it. They paid for it. Um, but that's not really an answer to your question. Um, I always found him to be a very interesting character. I was really vehemently opposed to his policies and his actions as president for the most part. But he also came very close to negotiating a total ban on nuclear weapons. But also this notion of him as the great communicator was interesting to me. And he, he was a really great communicator. He was a professional actor. Um, it was all about image, and, and he had a bona fide small-town past. My process on visiting all these communities was to just drop in for two, three, four days, not to try and embed myself, not to kid myself or pretend that I was uncovering anything truthful or essential about the communities. Um, very few exceptions. I, I don't think I made arrangements ahead of time or reached out to people. I would just show up and walk around. So Dixon, Illinois, um, Ronald Reagan's hometown. It's a small town in uh, west central Illinois. And what did I find there? I found people doing yoga in public underneath a statue of Ronald Reagan. I found Ronald Reagan's childhood home and I chatted with the staff there that were hanging some uh, red, white, and blue bunting outside of the home. I met a woman in a bar that was across the street from the uh, county Democratic headquarters. I learned that not everybody in Dixon is a Republican or was a Reagan supporter. Um, I met a couple of young men fishing for carp with a compound bow next to uh, the hydroelectric dam driving on the outskirts. I, I went to the park where Ronald Reagan had worked for a lot as a lifeguard. And on my way there, I passed a home business that um, was a gun seller with a 
uh, orange uh, AK-47 looking sign uh, cut out as the shape of a gun uh, in front of a low-slung kind of suburban ranch looking house. I parked my car there. I went and rang the doorbell. There were big dogs inside barking. Uh, no one appeared. I was kind of disappointed because I wanted to meet the guy and take his portrait, but instead I made photographs. I spent probably about 40 minutes on the lawn of the house taking a picture of the sign. His neighbor came by to check up on me. I, I checked out apparently. Yeah, so that's what I did in Dixon, Illinois. And, you know, the thing I love about the project, among other things, is the diversity. Like, we have Ronald Reagan, and then we have Thomas Kincaid. Mm -hmm. And how did, how did Thomas Kincaid and the Kincaid industry of, uh, uh, I don't know what to call the Kincaid experience, but how did that emerge as a city and a place and a, and a thing? It's interesting that you describe Kincaid and Reagan as being diverse figures. In fact, they were both... Uh, white men of similar age who uh, grew up in small-town America. Uh, Thomas Kincaid, the so-called painter of light, and there's a trademark, a TM after that phrase, uh, was by some arguments America's greatest artist, depending on how you measure things. His company at its height was grossing $400 million a year only based on his work. They, weren't, they tried selling other artists' work for a while, but uh, Kincaid was, was where the juice was. Um, and they make, made a claim that I think has been substantiated that at one point, one in 20 American homes had a piece of art by Thomas Kincaid. So he was a natural choice for this. Uh, his work is very sentimental. It's paintings of uh, residences and some business districts and a variety of other things, cottages with lights on, um, that portray a, an idealized view of life. It's not specifically American, but some of, the, some of the locations seem like they might be American. They might be from the British Isles, uh, quaint little cottages. Uh, and there's a, a strong Christian underpinning to, um, to his work, both the coded messages in the work and also his, his dealer network and his clientele. And I just thought he was a really interesting character as, as a person and all his, also his paintings. Uh, they're terrible paintings. You know, I don't, I, I like good, bad paintings. These aren't even bad enough to be good. That's it's hard to No, I, no I understand it's quiche, it's quiche that is, uh, uh, but maybe less than fully cooked. Uh, <laughs> quiche, not quiche, quiche. <laughs> not, not, not quiche, not quiche, not quiche. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and you, each of these artists and each of these, I'm just going to call them zones of nostalgia. Yeah. That's, I just made that up on the spot. It's not mm -hmm. really, but it's just a way to think about it. So the zone of nostalgia involves the Reagan place as well as what Reagan you know, Reagan's, as well as the imagery around the photographs mm -hmm. that you, you found in the place from your sort of communing with, well, what, 
was Reagan to me, or what was mm -hmm. Reagan to the country, or what do you know? So you're just kind of communing there, sitting, letting that steep. And the same with Kincaid. So when you went to the placeness of Kincaid, when mm -hmm. you went to the Kincaid zone in your walkabout street photographer way, what did you find? Well, there are two Kincaid places I went to that are very interesting in how they contrast. One is a planned community, a gated community that was sort of branded on Kincaid. The houses were constructed to sort of vaguely resemble some of the idealized cottages and so on in Kincaid's painting. That is in uh, Vallejo, California, so it's in the northeast of the metro San Francisco area. And I uh, was not able to get permission to enter there. I worked very hard on that with the management company and the, uh, the uh, homeowners association. Uh, actually took a vote on it and decided that they didn't need me wandering in, around their community. Um, I snuck in anyway. They with, thought you might be up to art? I don't know what they thought. I, I think, I don't know. I, I love to speculate about decision making and I'm pretty sure it was, well, what do we get out of this? Nothing. What's our risk? Who knows? Let's not do it. And also, I'll, I'll say this in general, the access process has changed in some ways, primarily because I, people can find out about me on the internet. They can look me up, they can go to my website, they can see uh, that there's a political take. I don't think it's overtly political, although maybe I'm kidding myself, maybe it is. There's a stance. Yeah, there's a stance, and also I wrote a statement about this project that's on the internet so they can go and read about it, so maybe they didn't like what they read, I don't know. Um, but I got, I got a little inside dope there on how to, how to get in, and they said basically just wait behind another car going in and just follow them in because the gate was not manned by security people, it just had a punch code. So, um, But there was nothing I really wanted to photograph inside there. I tried, I looked around, um, the, the real good photographs were from outside and that was the gate, the lights around the gate, the warning signs about security and surveillance. Um, and all done in, in as best I could in the Kincaid style, the painter of light. So the light sources are important characters in the illumination of the scene. Um, the other location was uh, the small town that Thomas Kincaid grew up in, in uh, northeastern California. It's sort of halfway between Sacramento and uh, Tahoe. And it's a former mining community. It's called Placerville, uh, a city of, I don't know, several thousand people, you know, large for that area, but a fairly small town. I went to an American Legion spaghetti dinner that was really great. People were extremely friendly there. Often have to explain, what am I doing? What's this project about? And I always think of the phrase, well, to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And I'm not obligated. I am obligated to tell the truth. I don't lie to people, but I don't have to tell them everything. So I tell them I'm interested in small towns of famous people. And I'm thinking about the good old days and people who talked about the good old days. So, and that's all accurate. true. And that's all true. It's all true. Um, they do have one of the few remaining Thomas Kincaid galleries in Placerville. And for those who are not as intimately familiar with his biographies as, as I have become, uh, 
he died in the arms of his mistress of a drug overdose, I believe, overseas in Paris, perhaps. Uh, he was a very uh, large operatic figure. He was literally a very large man, but he met a tragic end. He was also, his company was uh, being sued uh, by numerous uh, owners of the Kincaid Gallery franchises. Uh, there was just a lot of bad stuff going down. So he, uh, he grew up with very humble beginnings and mm -hmm. a troubled family life. Mm -hmm. I'm still waiting for a good biography. There, there, there yeah. is. It will make a fantastic motion picture. Make uh, a great opera. Actually, yeah, I just yeah, think yeah, it's so yeah, operatic. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I don't know why nobody's done yeah. it. Give it a little time. Well, he died. Yeah. I don't know. Was it 2015, 2014? I think it was a little earlier than that. Yeah. Was six years ago, maybe. Uh, there is a biography that has a lot of good information. It was written by one of his uh, mm -hmm. business associates, mm -hmm. and it doesn't totally skirt the troubling mm -hmm. issues. You know, he was mm -hmm. a philanderer. Mm -hmm. He was involved with. He was. Mm -hmm. He was not. Mm -hmm. He was a very flawed individual, and they address that. But it's it's fairly adulatory, mm -hmm. the book, mm -hmm. and it's also there's nothing mm -hmm. worse than mm -hmm. people who are not artists or art critics writing about what a great artist somebody <laughs> is, like like he invented atmospheric perspective and chiaroscuro. And anyway, so yes, it's a great opportunity if if we know any. Uh, and any biographer is looking for a juicy subject. I'm sure it would not be authorized uh, by his estate. And, and his, so the company still exists. Um, there still is the Kincaid Art Company, and his uh, son is a, a painter now, and so they sell his paintings. Um, hmm. Well, I, we'll wrap, in terms of the pictures and the places and how though that, that element of the work, researching, identifying, yes, for example, Kincaid was a yes for reasons we talked about. And then Norman Rockwell would seem to be almost so obvious to make it difficult, but it's just obvious that our ideas about the good old days was, you know, a Norman mm -hmm. Saturday Evening Post, Norman Rockwell, you know, confection. And um, in many ways, you know, as a man thinketh, you know, you kind of are the way you think. And, he set us up to think of ourselves in a certain way, whether we were or not that way, he set us up. So how did Rockwell and your work with Rockwell figure into the work? And when, and curious, this is an odd question, but when did you get to Rockwell? Who was your, who did you start with and then how did it, how did you bounce from Reagan to Kincaid to Rockwell to Andy of Mayberry and how, how did that all unfold? That's three questions sure. rattled up in one, take it however you want. I started with Rockwell. Oh, cool. That was the, the first stop. Mm -hmm. um, I have sort of a personal history and a connection with Rockwell, beginning with uh, the Saturday Evening Post being delivered to my home. Mm -hmm. I believe it was a weekly. It came mm -hmm. on Thursday. Mm -hmm. um, he was my first idea of, of what an artist was. And I have an older brother who's a painter mm. um, who was very influenced by Rockwell. He developed originally kind of a, a realist style. And we also spent our summers as a kid in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Uh, my parents rented a house on a lake there, and that's where Rockwell lived in the, uh, the last decade or so of his life. Um, in the book, there's uh, a very famous painting uh, by Rockwell. It's called uh, Main Street, Stockbridge, Home for Christmas. And it's a winter scene of this very picturesque uh, New England town with 
a bunch of scenarios of uh, little vignettes of people carrying Christmas trees and having snowball fights. And it is just totally, you know, what we think of as the good old days in America. And I spent a lot of time there as, as a kid in the summer times. So I started there. I went um, the day after Christmas in 2017 uh, with the idea of replicating that painting in photographs. And the town itself as it exists now is an exercise in nostalgia for tourists. But it's real. All the businesses on that street are, are going concerns, but they don't dare tear down any of those buildings or touch them. One um, of them changed hands recently. I read it. It's such a big deal that when a building sells on Main Street in Stockbridge, it ends up in the New York Times. It's, it's that big news. Um, and Rockwell was a very interesting character. My brother actually um, met with him a couple of times when he was... Oh, my brother, I'm guessing he was maybe 14 or 15. My father would drive him to Rockwell's studio. They had corresponded. And uh, I have a photo of my brother Don sitting, sitting with Rockwell. And Don has one of his paintings that he's holding on to that ended up being donated to the Rockwell Museum. So I have some history there. Rockwell was revered in my family. Um, there are some really interesting biographies of Rockwell. He you know, also was a very troubled, conflicted man. His politics evolved over the years. He started out as a conservative Republican and um, ended up doing some really terrific paintings and magazine covers uh, based on civil rights, the integration of the school. I, and he had a huge audience. So you know, I think he was an artist who really played a role. So working with you, uh, it's been such a joy to work with you on editing and thinking about, and editing this has been a really uh, wonderful experience because of the interplay between um, the ideas that are a backdrop to how and what you photographed and how and what was selected in the edit, uh, but also how the illustrations and the found material or the source material would be in conversation with the photographs that, so, so there's this really interesting choral, almost a chorus of voices between the research and the insights and the, you know, what you've gathered into yourself about Rockwell or Kincaid or Reagan, and then you go to their places and these photographs stumble, you stumble onto the photographs, mm -hmm. or sometimes I feel like photographs stumble onto the photographer, and then you collect those in your basket, and then you've got this, uh, this archive of these illustrations from that era. So speak a little bit about how the, these, um, these, uh, this chorus comes together for you. And it had already come together in large part, and I want to acknowledge that, that this, we were able to step in and start working with you on this project after it was very largely... Uh, already shaped by you, and I think I, I hope we've added some value to it. But speak about that. How did it begin to become a become come together? I guess. Well, first I wouldn't understate your contribution as an editor and you know taking on this project with me in the first place. It's been really terrific collaborating, and it you know it's not an easy dance to do. You're working with an artist, and obviously I'm very uh, invested. <laughs> in all this, but you've, you've had some really great insights uh, and imposed some discipline. And the thing would probably be 200 pages if it was just up to me. Um, editing and sequencing pictures 
is in some ways as challenging or more challenging than, than taking the pictures because there's a method to it, there's experience, there's um, techniques and structures you can add to it, but at its core, it's a very intuitive thing that kind of comes from your gut and from, from your eye, and it can change from day to day, and you could make a good decision one day that you might not make on a different day, or you might make a different good decision on a, on a different day. I like to think in both music and cooking metaphors, um, I think music is, is particularly instructive here because it's a time-based process for the audience. Um, some people like me always look through books from the back to the front, but typically you, you go through this. And there's a rhythm um, that the editor has to establish. You have to introduce the themes early on. I'm thinking musically, more, mostly in terms of a of a piece of classical music as An overture to, to freeform jazz. Yeah, you introduce the theme, some rhythm between dramatic portions and more restful portions. You have to give the audience a break. You can't just pummel them with uh, challenging stuff one after another. If there's humor, you sprinkle it in there in various spots. Um, and then, you know, how the sourced material gets mixed in there is, is also, uh, it's really challenging, and you know I'm not sure how well we're succeeding or, or not, not succeeding. It's um, as I said, there's no blueprint for this particular project on, on how you put this together. I, I know other people have done it. I'm not inventing this notion of mixing photographs and and other material, and also the type of other material. Um, you know, I've tried to really be open to where these other pictures come from and what meanings they have. Um, there's several stills from uh, TV shows. Uh, I visited a museum in Minnesota. It's the uh, Minnesota Fishing Museum and Hall of Fame. And uh, even though the photos in the book are photos I took there, they're essentially found images of little vignettes that the curators had put together of famous fishermen, and they're all men from that part of uh, rural Minnesota, and it has a little snapshot of them and their favorite lures that they've assembled. They've really curated into these beautiful little, I don't know if they're like Joseph Coronel, but they're- Yeah, um, a little bit. You know, just these beautiful little vignettes. So, so to me, those are found images as well. I just really documented them. W one of the ones I'm, I'm particularly pleased with right now is uh, an image taken from a doorbell video camera um, <laughs> in New Rochelle, New York. And it's a home that um, had been occupied by Carl Reiner, who was the uh, creator and uh, head writer of the Dick Van Dyke show, which was a- And then uh, later, All in the Family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's a- he's a And he became I, Meathead's dad at some point. Yeah, so I visited uh, New Rochelle, um, the suburb of New York City, and went to Bonnie Meadow Road which was the street that Carl Reiner, the creator and head writer of the Dick Van Dyke show, actually lived on while he was making the show. The address of the fictional uh, Petri home of Robin, Robin Laura Petri was also on Bonnie Meadow Road. So the house, the, the Carl Reiner house is known as the Dick Van Dyke house. And, and there are some plot lines in some of the episodes where they refer to actual features in that house itself. 
I visited the house and uh, talked to a neighbor and said, oh, do you know these people that own the house? I said, no, they moved in not that long ago. Go ring the doorbell. So I went up the steps and I rang the doorbell. I've got my camera and all this stuff and uh, waited about a minute. And then a disembodied voice comes over the intercom. And I say, you know, I'm Paul. I'm working on this project. And, I, and you know, you know, it's the Carl Reiner, Dick Van Dyke house. He says, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, go ahead, take pictures, knock yourself out. Um, so I said, thank you. I spent a couple of hours there just wandering around the street. It was a bright sunny day, which was not the type of light I really prefer to photograph in. And I was trying to get a good picture and, you know, neighbors were coming by and like, what are you doing? Why are you here this long? Uh, and I left and I got on the train to go back to New York City and I just wasn't really happy with the pictures that I had made, and I thought, I wonder what, what I look like through that doorbell, because it was a, a ring doorbell, and the homeowner was able to see it on the app on his phone to see me standing there. And I hadn't gotten his contact information. He had a fairly common name, uh, and there were like 15 people with this name in, in that county in New York, but eventually I tracked him down because he had done a TV interview and finally, I found the guy through uh, LinkedIn and wrote to him and asked him if, if possibly if he could send me some stills. And I told him a little bit about my project. And he did. And then he said, do you want, want to see the video? So he, <laughs> sent, uh, he sent the video clip, both of me walking up to his doorbell, ringing the doorbell, him talking to me. And then a terrific video of the mailman coming up and delivering the mail. And I happened to be standing in the street photographing. So in the book, we'll have a, a photograph that I made of the mailman <laughs> coming to the door and then a grab from the video of the mailman. And, you know, it's this extreme wide angle fisheye view. And it's just, I'm, I'm very pleased with it. <laughs> well, Be because we saw as a, you know, as Americans in the early 1960s, we saw inside some Hollywood made up version of this home. We saw life in this home. We saw the fictional Petri family. And the current family who lives there sees life outside the house through video. Through a, so the, it's the just glass eye, a glass eye view of the world yeah. coming at them from outside. Yeah. You know, to me, this is a great encapsulation of, um, uh, of uh, I've come to see your pro this project, Pastime, uh, as like a guy that pushes his canoe out into a river, uh, or, or call it memory, memory lane, pushes his, his bicycle out into memory lane, and you just set out, you just sallied forth to see, well, what is this uh, America that we're making great again? What is this, what is this land and so you just, through your research and the found images and your, go, your visits to the place and these stories and these happenings and these images, you've kind of paddled upstream to Neverland, to the place that never was. Mm -hmm. And you're showing us, well, here's the place that is where the Neverland never was. I mean, not just that, mm -hmm. but it's, it's that walkabout to a place that you suspect was it didn't exist the way we thought it existed, and by showing it to us inside and out uh, through the pictures that you took and selected and we sequenced and edited and the pictures that you found and that we put in there, we're given kind of a, 
panopticon view of well, what in, and again, I also, it's interesting that you didn't just go to one place, but we really are dealing with, what, um, 10 places? I didn't, I've never made a count. Eight? 10, 12. Different yeah. places or zones of, we could call them zones of nostalgia. It, it really is a very random sampling, and, and honestly, I could have gone to yeah. any 10 or 12 random communities. But these America. were personal to you, right? And that's, again, back to where the soil, this work grows out of that personal soil that we're, yeah. we're talking about. Yeah, but it, it was really a structure. It's just kind of an armature for me to uh, design a project where I could hit the road and go visit places, which what I love to do. Which takes me to sort of the jumping off point of our train ride together, which is now that you're get closer to the end of the project and we have what we have and we're about to put out into the world what we're about to put out in the world, what say you now about that journey and what's there and where this might nestle into the world? Where would this project or this work, where might it go? Where could it how would it be in in people's lives? You know, oh, that's Possi I mean, a it, million, yeah, a million places. I mean, I'd I'd, I'd love yeah. for every home in America to have a book, <laughs> and I'd love to have a have a tour of major museum exhibitions. Yeah. But you know, that's well, I mean, not not so much not so much practically, but just how would this if I were a reader and I am a reader mm -hmm. of photo books, how how would I come to this book? How would I read it? Bill, that is so up to you. I really believe that when I make anything, when any artist makes anything, you send it out in the world and it leaves home and it has to stand or fail or on its own or live, <laughs> live its own life. Um, I'm, very, uh, I'm very hesitant to suggest how anybody should read any artwork, let alone mine. And I learn a lot. I mean, I, I don't often have the opportunity, but when I can speak to people that have, have seen something I've done and they tell me how it resonates with them, I learned something, you know, I get a kick out of it. And often people will, will read something that wasn't at all what I had thought of. I was going to say it wasn't what I intended, but I don't, I mean, clearly I have intentions. I'm not a, a I think about filmmaking and, and uh, people who make films, they have ideas. They want to lead us around by the nose and I clearly do also, but any appreciation of, of whether it's film or any other artwork, it has to come from the, the person's own connection, what they bring to it, whether it reminds them of something, mm -hmm. some experience they've had. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how this book is going to be read or received. And how do you read it and receive it having started the journey and now being close to a place where you have to let it go? You could work on something for forever, but you know, you're ready to let it go. How is it, how is it, what have you learned from it? Wow. What, how has your curiosity been sated? Oh, wow. Um, well, interestingly, I, I want, didn't want to talk about race a little bit. Yeah. Um, I didn't set out to either include or exclude people of color, but there are very few in the book. And, you know, that may be a residual 
uh, effect of why these places were influential in the first place in our notion of the good old days. Um, Walt Disney's hometown, for instance, is, is in a small town in Missouri. It doesn't seem to be a very prosperous town. It's called Marceline, Missouri. Um, I think I did see a black guy at the cafe, but it turns out he was a railroad worker. I don't think he even lived in the town. There were, um, it's still, it, the, the town started as a railroad junction and it still functions um, more or less for that reason. Um, I really tried to avoid the tourist angles that these towns all have. You know, there's a little Walt Disney Museum, Ronald Reagan's town has, has the home mm -hmm. he grew up with. Uh, um, Mount Airy, North Carolina is uh, the town where Andy Griffith grew up and, and they're kind of doing the Mayberry thing mm -hmm. um, pretty heavily, uh, but that wasn't what I was interested in photographing. So what have I learned? Um, people are friendly to me. I jokingly refer this uh, to this project, particularly with my black friends as, as the white privilege tour. Um, because I, even though I ran it, you know, some people didn't want to have their pictures taken. Some people were bothered by my behavior for one reason or another, but I never felt unsafe. And you know, there were a couple of instances where the police were involved and I never once occurred to me that anybody was going to hurt me. Um, and that's not to say that a person of color couldn't go out and do this and be safe doing it. Um, but they certainly wouldn't feel as comfortable. I, I don't think I'm speaking out of my lane in saying that. Um, it, it was humbling in, in many ways. Uh, I, I never really believed that I would come to understand a place just by spending a couple of days there, and I totally don't believe that now. Um, I just scratched the surface. There are some places where I tried to get a little more of an inside view. I was in uh, Sauk Center, Minnesota, which is the home of uh, the writer uh, Sinclair Lewis. And that location is a little bit of an outlier because Sinclair Lewis's book Main Street was a very critical, very snarky, dark view. It was not a celebration of small town America, although the town has adopted Sinclair Lewis and their, their athletic teams are called the Main Streeters. Uh, I, I think I was having coffee. I go to places where I might meet people. So I went to the coffee shop that seemed to be the happening place. And almost immediately there was just this friendly guy coming in and he asked me how my day was. I said, oh, it's great, how are you doing? And he was an older gentleman and said, hey, you wanna sit down and have coffee with me? And it, turns out that he had been the, the former athletic director at the high school and just a very talkative, friendly guy. And uh, he suggested that I go to the community garden, like if you want to meet people, because I was also interested in meeting uh, newer people in the community. And so I went to the community garden. There was a woman, a very friendly woman. She didn't want me to take her picture, but that was fine. And, Turns out that her husband was the current athletic director at the high school, and this was in August. And she said, yeah, the teams are there practicing. They're having an early practice. And so I went to the high school and uh, 
walked into the office and, and the athletic director was there and he said, yeah, I just met your wife in the garden. And, and he said, go, yeah, take pictures, knock yourself out. So I'm, I'm just mentioning this as illustration of how if I'm a little friendly and a little curious that, you know, you can see some great stuff. I think that's a, a perfect way to wrap this up. And I'm going to not wrap it up and just say that it seems to me, and it's in one way, you went looking for a past that you knew wasn't really there, that was mm -hmm. a nostalgic past. And in that search for something, you're looking for something that you know doesn't exist, which is beautifully kind of, <laughs> I don't know, uh, ironic is not the word, mm -hmm. but it's kind of a, you know, um, uh, layered thing. And you found something that is there and was there and will be there, which is the thing that is there and not the thing that's been pointed to that never really existed. And you're walking in the direction of what was being pointed to and you found the finger, so to speak, the thing that was doing the pointing. Yeah. And uh, so conclusions, I, you know, in, in some ways, um, most stereotypes have some basis in reality. Yeah, I don't, I guess I don't really want to talk much about um, conclusions about the people. I didn't, I didn't go there to judge them, but we all have prejudgments that we make and it's a challenge I give myself every, every day, whether I'm working on a project or whether I'm walking down the street or at the school where I teach to question my own assumptions. Mm. And so this was a great opportunity to, mm. que to question my assumptions. Mm -hmm.